This is the Ontolog Forum, and today we have the pleasure of uh, two invited speakers, Mr. Jack Park and Dr. Patrick DeRusso, uh, speaking uh, on the subject, Avoiding Hobson's Choice in Choosing an Ontology. Again, this is uh, April 27th, year 2006. Uh, before we go into the agenda, maybe let's go around and introduce uh, ourselves and just briefly uh, uh, tell us who you are and where you come from. Uh, let's go down the attendee list. So, Doug? Oh, I'm an ex-farm kid from Oregon named Doug Engelbart. <laughs> Welcome. I mean, we're we in the presence of greatness today. Welcome very much, Doug. Cecilia? Thank you. Uh, yes, I'm uh, Cecilia Hickel. I'm uh, a company owner, Kionis Scientific, here in Benton City, Washington State. Hey, Peter Yim, I'm uh, uh, from CIM3 and also a co-convener of Ontolog. Roy? Roy Roebuck, I'm with ComIT Enterprises, working on enterprise uh, management ontologies. Arturo? Um, I'm Arturo Sanchez. I'm from the University of North Florida. I'm an associate professor here and coordinator of the software engineering program. Bob Smith, Daltry Labs, Huntington Beach, California. Pat? Pat Chastain, Miter, ontologist. Kurt. Uh, Kurt Conrad, independent consultant, Santa Clara, California. Jennifer Bocher, a librarian at Georgetown University and completely new to this whole concept. Welcome. Susan? Uh, Susan Turnbull, uh, General <coughs> Services Administration, uh, Intergovernmental Solutions Office. Hey. I'm Vinay Chaudhry. I work at SRI in the area of knowledge-based systems. Heinig. Um, I'm Pat Heinig. I'm currently a senior enterprise architect with U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, although my very last day in the federal government is tomorrow. And uh, I will be working as a consultant um, for Project Performance Corporation in Tyson's Corner. Uh, Michael Gruninger at the University of Toronto, uh, starting up a semantic technologies laboratory. I've uh, worked in the past with Steve Ray at NIST on the process specification language ontology and also the uh, semantic web services ontology. Great. Thank you, Michael. Patrick, uh, let's hold off on, on Patrick DeRusso uh, and let's go to Itzhak. Uh, yeah, it's hard for us. Um, semantic architect, that's the title. Uh, Working uh, for Unicorn, currently on a bioinformatics uh, project using ontologies for information integration and discovery. Um, Steve Ray, uh, Division Chief at NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology. We're uh, working on incorporating ontologies into the next generation of information standards. Thank you, Steve. Josh? Uh, this is Josh Lieberman of Traverse Technologies in Cambridge. A reformed geologist and sometime architect for the Open Geospatial Consortium. Thank you for coming, Josh. Paul? 
Paul Cook with Cabrick Company in Silver Spring, Maryland. Uh, we develop controlled vocabularies in the health sciences. James? James Warner with the Boeing Company. I advise um, IT organizations in Boeing who are deploying virtual team rooms on how to uh, organize and make their information searchable, findable, understandable, that type of thing. Now you know what not to do in the team room. <laughs> <laughs> Gary? This is uh, Gary Bergfroth. I'm with EMNI. I'm a cognitive psychologist working in medical ontologies. Great. So we introduce everyone else except for the two speakers. And we have the honor of having uh, Dr. Douglas Engelbart uh, introduce our speakers. Doug? Oh, well, thank you very much, Peter. Um, I've got a, <coughs> a real sort of respectful reverence to the ontology world that I feel I should have known more about. <laughs> but um, in my long, I should say, staggering forward uh, career, I came across a man named uh, Adam Chire at SRI some years ago. And then when he left and started this vertical net, then I met two people there, one named Peter Yim and the other named Jack Park. And uh, subsequently I got to know them both a lot. And Jack uh, really impressed me with uh, a book he'd written about wind, wind power. <laughs> and and uh, I really liked that. And uh, so we've kept in touch with each other since then. And, and uh, I respect the kind of knowledge he's brought and developed from many aspects of his background. And... Uh, so anyway, I'm I'm looking forward to hearing from him today, and uh, I need to learn about this ontology. So um, let's see. Uh, do I just turn it over now to Peter or to Jack? Either way, thank you, Doug. Okay. Um, I I have to say that this is a, a really rich and and thoughtful crowd. Uh, it's it's mildly uh, intimidating to to. I have to uh, have this opportunity to to um, articulate some ideas that evolved out of uh, work that I have been doing uh, with Adam Chire and my group here at SRI, and with uh, Doug Engelbart along the way. It came it came to me that um, that we might be able to find a way to rather than fuse ontologies uh, to actually bring them together in a way uh, in which um, all worldviews could be given essentially an equal uh, disposition in front of the users um, as, as a means of federation. And I think I should say something about my use of the word federation because many people um, ask me what I mean by that. And federation can be interpreted many different ways. So I take the simplest possible definition, which is simply to bring together um, and do so in a way that there is no um, ontological privilege given to any given particular worldview. What I proposed was using uh, the subject-centric opportunity that subject maps uh, give to uh, literally find those places where entities in an ontology are speaking to the same subject. And if they are, then they merge within the within the uh, subject map itself such that all of the world views are brought together under the under the uh, guise of the subject which they represent um, 
that's the simplest, largest worldview of what I'm trying to do. Now, um, I brought with me uh, on this talk uh, Patrick DeRusso, who I met while uh, serving on the XTM authoring group. That's the group that put together the standard for the XML version of the ISO 13250 uh, topic map standard. Um, Patrick is probably one of the most literate men that I've ever met. He's, he's an attorney and he's also a scholar in ancient languages and and that sort of thing. And so he he has the ability to to speak uh, of this subject matter in rich tones that I don't have. And so I've asked him to to um, to uh, help me prepare this and to deliver large portions of it. Um, Patrick actually wrote the the um, the uh, abstract for it and and created the, the framework for this talk. Um, I should also mention that I'm using the word subject map in difference to topic map, and that's because we are working from something called the TMRM, which came after the XTM specification in an attempt to develop an, an even richer way of uh, representing subjects. Uh, so with that in mind, I'd, I'd like to um, go to the slides. Um, if, if you're on the front page, um, you can see the, the, uh, the email links to Patrick and I. Um, I would like uh, Peter to skip the next two slides because they are they're just a recording of the abstract itself, which I put in to the slides simply so they would be there for completeness, uh, but they're not part of this talk. So if we're at slide three, we're at the outline, and we're going to talk about Hobson's choice. And I'd like to turn it over to Patrick for at uh, starting at slide five, where he introduces what that means. Thank you, Jack. Uh, I uh, did some background research on, uh, on Hobson's Choice, and I, I guess it illustrates that university students haven't really changed all that much since the 16th or 17th century because Hobson was renting horses, I guess, sort of like you'd rent cars now, and uh, everybody wanted to, wanted to drive the Corvette and not, not get the Hyundai uh, when they were going out on Saturday night. And as a consequence, uh, students were requesting the same horses over and over again. And he wanted to be able to rotate the horses so that none of them got overworked. So he came up with uh, what has become known as Hobson's Choice, where students, again, being as they always are, uh, quick to apply things in situations where they weren't really didn't really start out. Uh, the Hobson's Choice was you take the horses closest to the door or take none at all. Uh, so there, there's an appearance that you have a choice, but if you really are in the market for renting a horse, uh, you don't really have a free choice in that situation. So that's your uh, your bit of trivia for today. If we could go to uh, slide six, the question that one of the questions that Jack and I want to explore was who uses ontologies, because uh, to some extent. When we, in a, in a professional environment, particularly such as this one, when we use the word ontology, we mean it in a fairly specialized sense of the word. Uh, but in point of fact, uh, ontologies are used quite widely, whether they are as formal and as rigorous as the ones that we're accustomed to discussing in this forum or not. And 
what we suggest is that most knowledge or information users rely on ontologies of one sort or another. And that would include libraries, the usual suspects, libraries, research institutes, financial institutions, schools, governments. And our basic premise for this presentation was that all meaningful information is recorded with respect to some ontology. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that we know what the ontology is, but people don't write down information that they don't think is otherwise meaningful, that somehow is organized within some type of framework of concepts, which if we were to write it all out, I think most of us would actually recognize as being an ontology. So that's our first premise, is that everybody thinks that they, they mean something when they write information down. If we can go to slide seven. So then, of course, the natural question is, well, where do ontologies come from? And of course, these are obviously silly questions, but there were ones that we thought we might start the presentation off with, with some humor. Uh, I don't know if we were anticipating that the standard ontology joke during the plugging in of the uh, recording mechanism was going to fail, but it's, it's our own feeble attempt. And so we said, well, our ontologies handed out at graduation. It's wedding presents, uh, when you register for a driver's license or to vote. And so if they don't come from, if, if people are not handed ontologies, then the question is, well, where do they come from? Well, they come from people, people who use concepts to represent their worldview. Slide eight. Uh, yes, I'm sorry, slide eight. Uh, and in any worldview, the concepts that they're using have relationships to other concepts. And at least within a worldview, those concepts and relationships are associated with what they view to be the real world. People take actions on, on their ontologies. They reason based upon those concepts. Just as, just as we would say that we reason when we're using a, a formal ontology. Of course, the reasoning may not be as rigorous. It certainly isn't as rigorous as, as you do with a formal ontology. But the bottom line is that ontologies actually originate from people, from users. Now, if we can go to uh, slide nine. So Hobson's choice in ontologies. We've been talking about ontologizing ontolog. So an ontology is required. But which ontology are we going to take? And of course, I've, I framed the, uh, the, the students, the Hobson's uh, question to us as well, the one closest to my door, of course. And the, the problem with that response is that we all have different doors to which, next to which stand our ontologies. The ones that we either operate with as formal ontologists or ones that we operate as users or as system designers. And of course, when we get into a discussion about ontologies, and we've all been there, uh, well, the choice is obvious. We're going to use, and then of course you name your ontology. I mean, what other, what other choice would there be? If we'll go to slide 10, ontology levels, the problem though is that we look at, uh, the ontology level, this is a slide from, uh, from MITRE Corporation, you notice that there are upper ontologies, and of course this is, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because y'all are very familiar with this, that ontologies tend to become more complex the closer to users we get. In other words, the more detailed the ontology, the more individual ontologies are going to diverge, which is illustrated by the next slide, which is 11. You'll notice that the amount of detail in a knowledge base, when you get down to the lowest level, uh, is extremely particular. 
And as you as you go up, of course, the categories become much more broad. And the 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 reason why we want to take the time to point this out is that as we know there are divergences in upper ontologies, if there are divergences in upper ontologies, then there are certainly going to be more divergences in middle level ontologies and even greater divergences as we reach domain level ontologies. And we'll see that if you go to slide 12. So our premise is that ontological diversity is a given. I, mean, I don't think that, that anyone on this call would dispute that there are different ontologies that people use both at, at the upper levels, middle, and in domains, and that that we are faced with a situation where we do have diversity and that that diversity increases the closer we get to the user level, which is where, you know, despite the fact we spend a lot of time on more formal ontologies, ultimately we want to apply our what we learn there to actually have real results in terms of processing information for real users. So do we give users a Hobson's choice? Do we say either you could use you know, ontology X and you fill in the X, or do we say don't use any ontology at all? Now, obviously, that's not really a solution. And this is where Jack's point about federation comes in. So if we go to slide 13, because Jack had a whole series of requirements for his notion of federation. First of all, and this, this may seem almost trivial to have to mention, but should be usable with any ontology, whether it's a formal ontology or not, because we don't have any control over, or at least in most situations, we don't have any control over the type of ontology that we're going to encounter. When we go out into uh, a business situation, for example, uh, most of the time you would not have any control over what ontologies, in the broad sense of the word, would be used in any particular department or between uh, enterprises that are under a, a much larger management structure. So if we're going to encounter these diverse ontologies, Jack's second requirement was, well, we have to maintain ontological diversity. Not simply tolerate it, not simply say, well, okay, we've got 12 different ontologies and we're going to allow some of them to be present but not all. Uh, in order to fulfill Jack's vision of federation, then we have to be able to honor, to maintain that ontological diversity from all the ontologies that we encounter. But, of course, if we're going to do that, uh, in order for this to be a useful exercise, we're going to have to merge information from those diverse ontologies. Well, okay, we can do that. We can just, just mash them all together. But, of course, then that raises problems, too, because we're going to want to have auditing trails. Uh, in any serious information system, there are always auditing controls uh, for no other reason just simply to maintain accuracy of the data. We want to know when it was changed, who it was changed by, uh, possibly to be able to either back things out or to account for or to hold people accountable for the information uh, that's been entered. But Jack had a couple of other requirements to go beyond even those. Jack wanted to preserve individual world views, you know, after we have this merging, after we've, we've merged all this information together, Jack wanted to be able to say, well, but everybody who gets to this merged object should be able to find their worldview 
uh, represented. It's not that that they're they're still separated somehow. They're all there together. But I should be able to get there and be able to see what I would have seen if I were within my own ontology, although obviously you would have other information available to you at that point that actually came in from from other ontologies. The last one I think was, was the most interesting though. Uh, Jack said that, well, we really need to be able to, if we get to this merged object, this is what we're going to call a subject proxy in just a few minutes, if we get to this merged uh, object, then shouldn't I be able to go from one ontology to another? And of course the answer is yes. Because if we bind, if we use subjects as a binding point, uh, the place at which merging of different representations of the same subject occur, then we've essentially created a, a wormhole, I think was Jack's term, a wormhole where we can go between ontologies. We're no longer limited to the one that we may have started out at. Now, it may or may not be useful in some situations, but certainly it was one of the requirements. And there are a number of benefits if we go to slide 14, because First of all, there is no Hobson's choice for either architects, designers, or users. Uh, users of information systems can interact with a system that reflects their worldview. And there are a couple of reasons uh, to want to be able to do that. First of all, uh, users are already using some type of information system. And to the extent that they can continue to use an information system that structures the world, their work, their interaction with it, with their work in the ways to which they have become accustomed, then we're not going to have to retrain people when we build new systems because we say, look, you already know how this works because we have, we have taken the system and constructed it so that it matches your worldview. In fact, you don't have to do anything at all in most cases. But the other thing is, the other thing we have to consider is that if we use, and anybody who's ever changed software systems will, will recognize this, if you change from one word processing uh, software package to another, there's always this learning curve, this uh, lack of accuracy. Well, you know, I hit the right hotkey, but then it didn't work, and then something else went wrong, uh, that we've all experienced. Because when the circumstances in which we're having to interact with our systems change, there's going to be a noticeable drop in accuracy. But there are advantages not just for, for end users, uh, because designers who may have a different view, slightly different, slightly broader view of information systems than their users can build their systems using their worldviews. And then, of course, finally, at the level that, that we're talking about, the, the audience we have here today, we're talking about architects of information systems. They can build systems with understandings that span those various worldviews that they've encountered from uh, information system designers. So it's not the case that they have to pick uh, one of any number of equally valid choices. They can actually merge any number of valid choices together. Which brings us to if, if I could amplify on the benefits sure. just a bit, um, there's there's something that we didn't go into in these slides because we were concerned that we'd run out of time to say everything, but I just want to make a brief note that 
by bringing together all of these worldviews in a convenient place where you're not splattered with noise from a from a search which brings up all sorts of odds and ends, you augment the opportunity for what I call chance discovery. The idea that you could be looking at your worldview or using a worldview in some project or designing something and just take a notice of somebody else's worldview and say, oh, there's another way and you may actually see something that nobody saw and uh, invent yet another way. This is the opportunity that I think Federation avails us. So we can go on to slide 15 now? Yeah, thank you, Jack. Uh, Federation with subject maps. Uh, now some of this, uh, now you have to realize I've been doing this for, for five years and at least partially responsible or to blame, depending upon how you want to look at it, for the uh, current version of the reference model, which is about eight pages of almost nothing but complex syntax. But uh, So we're not going to go into a lot of detail about subject maps, and I'll try to give you sort of a, an overarching view of how subject maps work without, without actually touching into a lot of the technical detail. The reference model, uh, first of all, is an abstract model. There is no syntax. There is no data model. And the reason for that is so that we could enable different data models and different syntaxes to all take advantage of the principles that are embodied in the reference model. And really, there is only one really basic principle. And that is that the same subject can have multiple ways of being identified, one by, by each community, as, as Jack, Jack actually found this picture of a rose a rose by any other name. It's still a rose. And you know, a person who raises roses may have a much more detailed description of what a rose is than I would. But in fact, uh, we are both still describing a rose. And that's sort of the, the, the premise upon which the reference model uh, goes forward in a great deal of detail. If we could jump to uh, 16. The reference model, uh, if we start off at the bottom of that slide, uh, is really a series of abstract concepts. And the reference model mandates what is called disclosure of legends. Uh, legends, the easiest way to think about it, I mean, we've all used uh, city maps, bus maps, that sort of thing. The legend on a map is the information that's given to tell you how you, how you read or how you interpret this particular map. So legends would regulate things like syntax. It would tell you uh, what properties civic proxies should have, uh, what circumstances under which they're considered to indicate the same subject, and that sort of information, something that helps you read a subject map. Now, a subject map is actually an implementation. You actually have uh, an instantiation in syntax or in memory. Uh, it, it is an expression of the abstract concepts which are detailed in the reference model. Now, if we can jump to uh, 17. Uh, the subject map uh, concerns subjects. And, of course, the natural question is, well, what's the subject? And our uh, historical answer has always been that it's anything that can be discussed in conversation. It can be an object. It can be a fictional character. It could be a relationship between two fictional characters. It could be a relationship between two actual characters or two actual people. Uh, essentially, 
the reference model tried to be as careful as it could to not bind or to, to limit what could be considered a subject. If you can, if you want to, if you can assign properties to something, if you can describe it, then you can actually create uh, properties that represent the subject, and we call that collection of properties uh, or subject proxies. It stands in the place of of the subject. And Jack has this really nice illustration uh, off to the side again of our rows, where he gives you several properties that are that indicate it indicate or identify uh, a rose. Now, if we could go to slide 18. So let's talk about subject proxies for a few moments. Um, first of all, the theory is, now it's not necessarily always the case, that there's only one proxy for any particular subject in a subject map. Now, that's the way it's supposed to work. And in fact, if you don't have, if you don't do the right, if you don't do careful merging, you could, in fact, wind up with different proxies for the same subject. You just don't know to merge them together. To take myself, for example, my, my full name is Patrick L. DeRusso, and you might have a proxy for Pat DeRusso. And if there isn't a merging rule that says, well, you know, for one reason or another, that those are, in fact, proxies for the same subject, then you could have more than one proxy for the same subject. But the theory of subject maps is that our access to information is enhanced if we create merging rules that merge all the proxies we can find for a single subject into a into a single subject proxy. And so proxies serve actually as binding points for all that we know about a subject. The sort of properties you're going to find there are subject identity properties, which is highlighted in red on the slide. You can find properties that represent its relationship with other subjects, and you can also find just other things that we happen to know about this particular subject. So let's go to slide 18. Talk a little bit more about subject proxies. In 19. So, yeah, I'm sorry, 19. Uh, subject properties. Uh, this is probably too much detail, but let me let me skate through this right quick. Uh, properties are key value pairs, and and the reason why that's important is that property keys are references to other subjects, other subject proxies that are disclosed in the map. In other words, if I have uh, a key that is name, for example, well, that key is actually a reference to another subject proxy for the subject name in the same subject map, so that it is never the case that uh, if you ask me what it means, I just keep simply saying over and over again, name, and you never get to go any further than that. Uh, property values the, the, uh, that are the other half of a key value pair uh, can be references to other proxies, such as if you had a relationship you were describing as a property value, uh, or they can be literals. Uh, this is Jim Warner from Boeing. I, this might be a confusing question, and, and maybe it's something... So, if I understand you correctly, you're saying that if, if something appears as a key once, it's likely to appear as a key other times and, 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 and provide a meaningful relationship between the key use in one instance and the key use in another instance. But are you all, on the other hand, are you saying that the key in one instance is a value in another instance? No, 
Uh, it can be. A key, in other words, uh, let me back up just a little bit because that's a very good question because the one thing that, that despite the fact Jack and I both proved these, the one thing we left out was the notion of labels. Uh, a key, that we need, like take, for example, name, and then we have a value for the name. Uh, the key name is a reference. It's a, uh, it's a label that actually points to another subject proxy. In other words, if I'm going to have the key name, there's another proxy somewhere in this subject map that can be referred to. Its label is name. So that and when you get, if you go to that okay. proxy, you find out what name, what subject name is supposed to be identified. Does that help? Yes, it does. It does. Okay. It helps a great deal. Thank you. Uh, I'm sorry about that. We we proved this a number of times, and we just, you know, uh, I can't tell you how many drafts I went through when we were inserting label into the latest version of the reference model, and I just I just dropped it. I just didn't uh, didn't remember to put it in. Uh, if we can go to slide 20, we can talk about disclosure. Uh, the the requirements of a legend. Uh, what we tried to do there were to say. Uh, not so much how a legend had to disclose what it discloses, but what it had to disclose. And because one of the things that is of concern to the reference model is how do you identify a subject? We said at first we we went through this round of saying, well, but we could we could make people say this or say that or say the other thing about about their subjects. And we finally said, well. But what's really important, what we really want to know, is when did the author of this subject proxy think that another subject proxy represented the same subject? What combination of properties would be required in that author's view to represent the same subject? And if you answer that question, then in our the way we were looking at it in the reference model, you've also answered the question of how did this particular author identify their subject? Because, you know, what else would you use uh, to determine if two or more subject proxies represented the same subject, other than properties that you thought identified the subject? Now, the other thing that uh, that legends have to, have to disclose are the subject property types. That was the, the our discussion just a few moments ago on keys. And when we say at the very bottom that legends govern the ontological commitments that can be made by a proxy author, um, that actually means that the range of choices that an author can make, the things that they can say in a subject map, have been in some ways delimited by the legend that they chose to author under. Because if there isn't, uh, if there isn't a property or there isn't a merging rule in a particular legend, or whatever it is the author wanted to say, uh, because there are you could have any any number of merging rules. I mean, the number of merging rules you could have is actually unbounded, and some may be easier to process than others. And then for some subject map legends, you may want to make certain restrictions just simply because uh, while it would be nice to have a more complex uh, processing model, uh, it simply isn't possible under certain circumstances. There's a quick question, Pat Heinig. Uh, is a commitment sort of very like a constraint or constraint dynamics? Uh, we didn't phrase it that way, but I think that's a fairly accurate uh, description of it. 
uh, it's not a constraint in the sense of, for example, a cardinality constraint, uh, although a legend could express a cardinality constraint. In, in the context in which we meant we were using this, the constraints would be, uh, say, for example, uh, this is a markup analogy. If you have a DTD, there are only certain elements that you can enter in your document, or else it is, does not conform to the DTD. And a legend is sort of like that. that in other words, the legend has delimited the range of things that you can say. That's not doesn't mean that if you had a different legend, you couldn't say other things. Uh, but it, it's a way of, of restricting uh, the boundaries within which a particular authoring task could be could be undertaken. Yeah, constraint would be a little too harsh, but I kept thinking that somehow when when you think of the word commitment, it sort of implies that there's something going on with a grammar or an allowable. Uh, I'm going to say an allowable discourse, as strange as that may sound, but um, something that that is actually um, conditioning that uh, that that interaction. Yes, yes, I think that's very true. I think that's very true. Um, if we could go to slide 21, uh, I'm just going to talk briefly about merging rules because we've covered some of this already. Uh, merging rules define when two or more subject proxies represent the same subject. Now, the added feature of the reference model is that if you have merging rules, and we're going to see an example of this in just a moment, if you have merging rules that have merged uh, two subject proxies together, those rules continue to operate even though the merging has taken place. So that if I have I have two proxies that merge together uh, based on some merging rule, well, the information that caused the merging of those two proxies is still present in the merged proxy. And someone adds a third proxy to the subject map, well, it's going to go ahead and merge with this other one as well. So that it's a case where, where merging isn't like a one-time event. Uh, merging can occur based upon the criteria that are represented in the merged proxy itself. Uh, if you go to slide 22, I did want to mention uh, that subject maps in RDF separated at birth. This is another feeble attempt at humor. Uh, and we all are familiar with RDF and the, the triple model of subject predicate and object, uh, where subject predicates and objects are all identified by URI. What is less well known is that subject maps, uh, the TRM, TMRM, uh, also has a triple. And it has a, it has subject, and it has keys, and it has values which map to the predicate objects that you find in RDF. The difference is that a subject in the reference model is identified by any number of key value pairs. In other words, the subject is always uh, one step removed from the map itself, and it's simply being identified by the properties that you have in a subject proxy. So it, it's kind of interesting that, at least it was to me when I first ran across this, because there's been this long-running debate between the RDF community and, and topic maps about, well, you're different from me, and oh, I'm different from you, and that sort of thing. Uh, and actually, they're not. I mean, the, most of the differences really are a question of how are you going to indicate what subject it is we're talking about more than it is anything else. If we can go to slide 23, uh, you'll all be glad to know that we have 
are going to read some examples and some interesting ones at that, I think. Uh, let me get any example number one. Uh, I happen to be a diabetic. So when I go to the store and I look for diced tomatoes, uh, it's happened to me right recently, it's not enough for me simply to look for diced tomatoes. The name alone is not enough because if you read carefully, uh, you'll see a can of fresh diced tomatoes that have added sugar in it. Uh, why they do that, I have I have no idea. But so the lesson we have to draw from that is, it's, you know, it's not enough simply to know the name of something. Uh, we have to compare the properties of subjects in order to determine identity. Now, if we could jump to slide 24, uh, and we'll talk about the diced tomatoes a little bit more because if you actually do go the next time you go to the store, look at the cans. You'll notice that the nutritional information all lists sugar as being an ingredient in, in diced tomatoes. Now, in the ingredient section, only some list sugar. So, I mean, this sounds kind of odd. But which one are we going to look at? I mean, do we look at nutrition or do we look at ingredients? Well, the, the reason why I point that out is that, you know, knowing the key is not enough because I could... Fortunately, I happen to know the difference between between uh, nutrition and ingredients. One is sugar occurs in all tomatoes. Sorry, I mean, you can't avoid sugar completely. Uh, what you want to avoid is sugar added as an ingredient because that means they opened up the can of tomatoes and took a tablespoon of sugar and poured it in and put the lid back on. That's probably not exactly how they do it. I'm, I'm kind of loose on manufacturing process. Uh, so you have to know what subject each key represents in order to make a, a meaningful choice in this situation. So if we could go to slide 25, let's sort of summarize a little bit about subject identity before we move on. Properties identify subjects. Uh, properties are the key value pairs we were talking about. Uh, keys are references to subject proxies, uh, which we, we saw with the, the previous example of knowing what the keys mean. Uh, the values may be references to subject proxies. And in a very real sense, this, this bundle of properties that, that we call a subject proxy uh, represents the ontological commitment of the author in another sense as well. That is, they've committed to, this is how I identify the subject. Uh, not some other way, not, uh, there may be, you know, not to say that an author couldn't have various ways of identifying the same subject, but each such way of representing a subject represents their commitment that if we're going to talk about this subject, this is how we're going to talk about it. So let's go to slide 26, and we'll talk about federation with subject maps. Now, federation with subject maps, uh, we have some ready-made subjects, right? We have concepts and ontologies, and they, they represent subjects. Uh, concepts and ontologies have properties. They either are literal properties or relationships with other concepts. Uh, the one thing that I haven't really noticed in, in some ontologies anyway is that there's a disclosure of how many of these properties have to be uh, matched in order to know that you have the same subject. Of course, you could say, well, you have to match all of them. And I'm sure that's probably the case with most of the upper ontologies. But I, as you get closer and closer to user-defined ontologies, uh, I may have any number of properties that I've associated with a particular subject that may or may not be relevant to actually identifying it. They may just be properties that I thought would be useful to know. 
Uh, Jack actually did a very good graphic on slide 27 uh, to show uh, an example of where we have two ontologies and one subject map. Now, we're actually going to get to a, an animated version of this in just a moment. But the, the theory, the, the thing that this slide illustrates is that the ontologies that are outside of the civic map, the, uh, the little balloon uh, circles with the arrows on them outside of the big circle, exist separately before we start. But then even after we have created the civic map and moved the ontologies inside, the actual information represented by the ontologies is preserved. Now, if we could go to slide 28, we're going to we're going to go through 28, 29 fairly quickly. Uh, for one thing, y'all all know Sumo and Psych far better than I do. Uh, and what I wanted to do is simply give everybody a sanity check uh, as we go on to the slides to demonstrate a merger between uh, Sumo and Psych on the con on the subject of Adam. So as you can see, I'm actually taking the properties from from the Sumo and Psych ontologies of Trying to remember, uh, yes, from both the sumo and psych ontology. So 28 represents the entry in sumo for Adam, and then slide 29 uh, represents uh, the psych representation for Adam. They're both perfectly reasonable. They both use different terminology, uh, different relationships. And so we want to start thinking about, well, how would I create subject proxies to merge these together? You know? So if we'll go to slide 30, we'll go ahead and construct a subject proxy. Now this isn't, this is not, let me start this off with a disclaimer, this is not actually uh, how I would really do a subject proxy for a sumo entry. But I had to have something that would fit onto a slide and that would be, give you sort of the flavor for how you go about constructing a, a civic proxy. So I uh, chose some properties from uh, the sumo ontology. And when you see down at the bottom, it says sumo with the arrow and a greater than sign logic and syntax, uh, you would actually represent, you could actually represent in a subject map all the logic and syntax of the sumo statements. So that if you have a sumo-based reasoning reasoner, uh, if it encounters the subject proxy, it can reason about this particular subject. Uh, just as it would if it were represented in some other some other format. Now, slide 31, you'll see a similar uh, reduction of the uh, information you would find in a psych ontology for an atom. Again, doing the same thing. I mean, I, I was trying to get it all onto one slide. So, but now we notice that you know none of the properties are the same. So you have to ask yourself, well, okay, we've got uh, two obviously very abbreviated subject proxies. Well, uh, how are we going to merge these two together? That's that's what we cover when we get to slide number 32. So how are we going to merge them? Uh, they have different keys, uh, different values. Uh, I asked the rhetorical question, same as, well, yes, you could do that. Uh, and in fact, that would be a perfectly valid way of doing merging. But the problem that you run into as a practical matter, when you do that, is that you've concealed the mind of the author. There's no audit trail to say when you get to the civic proxy. You can't say, well, why does this civic proxy have these values that look different from each other? Uh, and you can overcome that 
by actually adding properties to the respective subject proxies so that they do in fact merge and then you actually have a merging rule uh, that takes care of this. And the other problem, of course, obviously with same as is that you have to do it for every ontology you encounter. Whereas if you do the, the added property uh, process, if, say, for example, uh, the only ontology I know is SUMO, right? And there's someone who only uses the psych ontology that wants to find out information that I have. Well, if I map my information to SUMO, and assuming that you know, we have uh, a merger between those two ontologies, then I've been able to simply map to the ontology that I know and yet someone who only knows the psych ontology can take advantage of it. So we'll go to slide 33. You'll see that the uh, property that I've added, which is class equals Adam, uh, I added that to each one of the subject proxies, the ones from the one for sumo and the one for psych. And on that basis, I just left the class equals Adam there so that you could see that you know, the basis on which the merging had occurred and put it in a different color. So you see you still have, and obviously I've left out some more properties, again, just to get it all on one slide. You see some of the properties from Sumo. You see some of the properties in, uh, I guess that's blue-green, uh, from Psych. And then you see the, the Atom property, which I added, to cause these two proxies to merge together. Uh, let's go to slide 34, uh, which is where basically I explained what I just uh, went over with you. I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself. Um, but it, essentially, the, to summarize this particular slide, it was designed to show that we can, in fact, do auditing and demonstrate how uh, the two proxies actually came together. If you look at uh, slide 35, You'll notice that the merge proxy has, among others, it has these, these properties from different uh, ontologies. Now, if we have represented each one of these ontologies separately, both SUMO and Psych, we've represented their keys and their properties as references to other concepts that are also subject proxies, then once we get to this particular subject proxy, <coughs> We can use that location as a wormhole. I may not know anything. Let's say I'm, I'm the psych user, for example. I may not know anything about uh, how Sumo treats uh, some particular property value or some particular key that it's using. But by virtue of the fact that we have this, this merging, which may have taken place without me even being aware that such a thing was possible, then I can actually use that as a bridge to then go out into either direction, either towards Sumo or towards Psych. So this one proxy location, of course, other uh, you'd have other proxies, but we only have one here. You would have other proxies that represent electron. You would have other proxies that represent specialization, which would also be merged with other concepts in either Sumo or Psych, respectively. And by having that, by having that, that sort of merging of, of all these subject proxies, then I have a series of wormholes by which I can travel between ontologies 
so that I can actually, and this is really more from the standpoint of, of this particular audience, uh, more from the standpoint of a professional ontologist who would be interested in, in actually doing that in terms of exploring the, rela- the formal relationships between ontologies and when they represent the same subjects, uh, either for purposes of constructing better merging rules or for constructing more sophisticated information systems, but it gives us a way of, of creating this bridge between universes, as it were. And now we come to the probably the best part, because I can actually illustrate what we've been talking about in, in real time. Uh, slide 36, if you just tap it once. And then this is, this is Psych is on your left-hand side, Sumo is on the right. Now, Peter assured me this works over the virtual network, so let's see. If you press it again, you'll see a large uh, green circle appear in the middle, which is your subject map. And press it one more time, and you'll see the subject proxy for Psych appears at the top. Uh, press one more time, and you see the sumo uh, proxy occur appear. And of course, obviously, they both have this class equals atom uh, merging property, the one that I added, so that we could actually have them merge together. And then if you press down one more time, you have a merged proxy. And you'll notice that the the properties that and the and their values for each ontology persist. In other words, we still know which ontology. Now we're on slide 37, Peter. I guess after you hit it that last time, just so I can keep the numbering straight. Uh, you have a situation where we now have a merged representative of this single subject, and the single subject being an atom. Now, obviously, you know, in terms of, of actually writing uh, merging rules for Psych and Sumo, uh, there would be a lot more detail uh, and a lot more proxies involved. But, I mean, this gives you sort of the flavor for uh, how the paradigm actually works and combines information together. Let me give you a little less sophisticated example. Let's go to slide 38. Let's say, for example, we want to deliver food aid. Uh, Can I ask a quick question? Yes. On the previous slide, what do you do about nucleus and atomic nucleus? Oh, in this particular illustration, uh, I didn't try to create additional proxies that would merge those. But that's a very good question because it would illustrate uh, if I were actually writing a a, uh, subject map to merge SUMO and uh, PSYCH, then atomic nucleus and nucleus would both actually be uh, represented by a single subject proxy. And so what you would have is you would have a single subject proxy that represents the two of those together. And when somebody made reference to it, if you reference it from the uh, the psych properties, then it will actually take you to the subject proxy that has the psych atomic nucleus properties. It says this is the atomic nucleus. Uh, and at the same place, you would find the nucleus definition that you're going to find in SUMO. I'm not sure that I answered your question. 
I think so. It sounds like there's a can be a hierarchy of merged proxies. Yes, yes. In other words, you can you can merge uh, the. In other words, the uh, the atomic nucleus. If we have the, if we have this proxy that's right in front of us, the atomic nucleus would actually be pointing at the proxy that has the merger of atomic nucleus and nucleus. So in other words, you're always preserving the respective ontologies, even though you may have only a single object that's representing, for example, atomic nucleus and nucleus. Even though you only have a single object for that, we can still preserve the distinction, the, uh, the different definitions for that same subject that you find in Psyche and Zuma. Which is really, really fairly important when you think about uh, people being comfortable with uh, information systems on, for which they've written fairly complex ontologies. They're going to want to see, and of course, there's no, there's no requirement that you show everything that possibly could be shown about a subject. But it's uh, necessary for people to be able to establish a comfort level with, yes, in fact, this is the information I'm meant to record. And in fact, I can look and see my ontology's properties there. And so I am now assured that even if I don't know anything about any of the other information that's present, uh, I feel assured that this is, in fact, what I meant to say. This strikes me as one of those opportunities you talked about for discovering other worldviews. That, that was the idea. Okay, uh, let's go to uh, slide 38. Um, let's say, for example, we're, we're delivering uh, food aid to the farm, for example. Uh, and we have a real simple question. We want to know how many trucks there are that will carry 2,000 pounds of aid. Now, the problem is, of course, this is obviously an ontology at, at, at near user level, if, if not actually at user level is that in some ontologies they say load capacity, and others they say rated weight. Now, the problem is that the person out in the field doesn't really have time to go around investigating what everybody decided to call, how they were going to rate these trucks. They may not even be physically present. They may be at some remote location trying to schedule these deliveries. And it's very important that we get the right information to them. Uh, the solution to that would be to actually create merging rules in the information system so that however the person asks for it, whether they ask for it with load capacity or if they ask for it using rated weight, whichever was more familiar to them, uh, that they would get the right information that they need. Uh, because, I mean, I, that's really the point of an information system, right? I mean, it's not, it is not sufficient for an information system simply to always have the correct answer but it's hit or miss as to whether the user gets it or not. Uh, it's really very, very important that uh, that users get reliable information that they can understand and take advantage of, which is something that, uh, that Jack actually came up with a very good example of this on slide 39 from the intelligence community. Let's say, for example, we have two analysts, and uh, they have been analyzing information from the Middle East, and they need to represent, first First analyst represents that uh, Israel's voted to halt payments to Hamas, 
And then the second analyst is found an article that says, well, Israel has decided to stop payments to Palestine. Well, if that's all we know in terms of searching for patterns in intelligence information, uh, we might or might not actually get a useful result out of that. But as Jack pointed out, if we have if we have disclosure and merging rules that allow us to map between uh, the vote to halt payments as being the same as deciding to stop payments and Hamas and Palestine in this context, then the the user of this sort of analytical work, because you know the individual analyst had they uh, been at lunch together and said one of them said, well, yeah, I saw this article on halting payments, and no one said, oh, I saw an article on stopping payments. At their level of expertise, sure, they would have been able to work this out. The problem is that their information is being used by people who may lack that specialization of knowledge that they have. And so in order to, to empower those users as well so that we can essentially uh, smarten up the data, we can make it so that even if you ask not quite the right question, you're still going to discover the information that you need. Now, Jack also extended this uh, in, a, in a very useful way. If you go to slide 40, uh, the question is, well, and, and Jack asked me this one day, he said, well, how does merging happen? And, and we've talked about it, and actually there are a couple of ways that merging can happen. These are only just a couple of illustrative ways. Uh, one is you can obviously have automated merging. So we just have a mapping rule, and it's as disclosed in the legend, and that's it. It just it just happens. But ultimately, it's the human users who are the judge of whether or not that merging was correct or not. So you could actually have, as part of a federation facility, a way for a user to to get a merge result, and the user could say, "Well, you know, I really don't think that's true. I mean, I think the." Uh, when back when we first had zip codes, I'm kind of dating myself now, and you'd get uh, mail in Louisiana that, that had the, the name written out Los Angeles because because computers were just too dumb to distinguish between L.A. as in Los Angeles and Louisiana. Uh, you know, a user could say, well, you know, no, look, we're going to override that. That really doesn't mean Los Angeles. They really meant Louisiana. And so there is a, a process by which you can actually have interactive merging so that you have essentially, I think what is the term, augmented, augmented human intelligence so that the machine is making suggestions, but then the user can actually interact with the system in such a way as to get a much more useful result. We can, we can amplify on this uh, with the idea that, excuse me, if you were, say, a bunch of uh, analysts, uh, just to use that example, um, the analyst could go into a, 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 a space where they can articulate their their suggestion. It should it should merge because it should merge not it should not merge because. Um, one of the things that that I would claim in the sort of chance discovery arena is that very often analysts will say something and not actually say why they did it. When you get them into a discussion, a lot of that sort of latent knowledge and tacit knowledge that they've applied to the universe actually comes out. And, and I, would, I would say that uh, there's a huge amount of value in getting people to say what they mean 
in a space where they are debating whether to merge or whether to not merge. I actually think that there's a huge amount of value to society in general if if we if we encourage and facilitate this sort of interaction. Yeah, it's very true. I mean, I really like I really like that the way you, you put that, Jack. That there could be this uh, a discussion. You said a discussion. Of course, it obviously could occur between users as well, right? It's it's between anybody, and at least in in my vision of of how this thing could work um, in the large, in the wild. Uh, indeed, you would have it's kind of like the Wikipedia thing, where you have people go behind the article and say, no, that's not the way it was, and somebody else will come on and say, no, here's here's what I meant, and so forth. And you can, you're constantly evolving. You're you're seeking truth, as if truth is one of those destinations. Um, that's the the objective in any analytical work is to find find out what the truth is before it's too late. Uh, okay, if we can go on to uh, slide forty one, we're nearing the end. Uh, we have some observations we'd like to offer. Uh, first of all, <coughs> that that subject maps preserve, and of course now that's I guess that's really an implementation choice, but at least the way Jack and I have structured it. The subject maps that we're talking about for ontologies preserve all the information from merged ontologies. Secondly, uh, as we talked about a few moments ago, you get this wormhole portal between ontologies. Uh, the third point would be that it provides an explicit definition of subject sameness. This was Jack's point just a moment ago when he was pointing out that when you try to draw out analysts to find out what they actually meant, then you can actually refine that explicit definition uh, so that you actually get more information. You know, the more information you put into it, the better the system's going to be. Uh, it actually supports, although doesn't require, uh, auditable merging of information from different ontologies. Uh, if we can go to slide 42, uh, some other observations. Uh, this is more from a, a pragmatic business sort of standpoint. Uh, while people may not always think about it this way, business systems, accounting, inventory, shipping, uh, they all have ontologies, and a lot of times they have differing ontologies. And if we disclose what subjects are being identified in those systems, then we can map directly into the systems. In other words, as a consequence, auditors become able to peer down into incompatible or inconsistent information systems. So rather than uh, being confronted with this vast sea of, of different accounting systems used by contractors and subcontractors and sub-subcontractors and by their auditing agencies, people who are responsible for actually monitoring how money is spent could write legends that declare the subjects that are supposed to be being talked about in these various systems and actually essentially look down into these systems rather than simply having to say, well, you need to give me a report on what you did and then trying to somehow reconcile that with reports compared, prepared with other ontologies uh, by other parts of the system, uh, which obviously eventually gets to the point where you just say, well, there was X number of dollars and it got spent. And, you know, we can, we can track some of it, we can't track all of it. So I, mean, I think there's a, a real chance for this sort of thing to have uh, an impact in terms of command and control kind of system, systems, although normally we don't think about accounting systems, I guess, 
conventionally anyway as command and control systems, but that's essentially what they are. So if we will go to slide uh, 43. This part, I have to leave now. Thanks. Nice presentation. Uh, we're not required to have top-down top ontologies, uh, which can be expensive and very time-consuming. Uh, it empowers users to make their own ontologies. Uh, it also enables users to use their ontologies and not foreign or unfamiliar ones, which was the, the point about uh, how people are more accurate and uh, work better with their own ontologies. And it also makes it possible to map between ontologies that are incompatible or that have inconsistent assumptions. Because you have to recall that the, the binding point is the subject. What is the subject that this particular ontology is trying to talk about? And if we use that as sort of a uh, ontological neutral ground, I suppose, for lack of a better way to describe it, then we can actually uh, let everyone have whatever ontologies they want, uh, to whatever degree of consistency or inconsistency, uh, and we can take advantage of the advantage of those uh, in a in a complex environment. Now, if we'll go to slide 44. Uh, just a couple of quick points on the subject maps in particular. Uh, recall that we don't have, there are no required syntaxes or structures for subject maps. So that the consequence of that is that you can use information systems as they exist now. You can leverage uh, subject maps on top of them. The other thing to remember is that subject maps are able to leverage on existing ontologies and expertise. Because it's not the case that subject maps are in any way a replacement for ontologies or, or a, a denigration of all the incredibly complex work that's gone into building ontologies. I like to think of it more as a way of empowering ontologies to actually move beyond where they are now so that we can actually, as Jack would say, I think appropriately so, so that we can federate all the information that, that has gone into all the various ontologies. Uh, so it actually uh, is more of an empowerment mechanism than it is uh, a challenger or an alternative or anything like that. So if we go to our conclusion, uh, I think Jack and I would both conclude that do subject maps replace ontologies? Well, the answer is no. Uh, and hopefully if we've been at all persuasive, you will agree with us that subject maps can federate ontologies. Uh, as well as, do subject maps empower users? We think the answer is yes. And do subject maps empower ontologists? We think the answer is also yes. Now, I do have, even though this is the concluding slide, I do have a brief postscript. Remember the properties of subjects we were talking about? Now, the properties of subjects had to come from somewhere. Now, they existed uh, before the data had been ontologized. So actually, one of the ways that you can extend your ontological work that you've done thus far is that you can use subject maps to view data as though it had been represented in your ontology, because you know what properties are required for something to be a particular entity or relationship in your ontology without actually having to go to the work of sitting down with a data set and creating an ontology for it we can actually create a mapping that enables ontological reasoning, even in the absence of the data having been formally ontologized. So I think that's another advantage uh, that subject maps actually have to offer the ontology community. 
and I think Jack's probably tired of hearing my voice, and it's about to go out anyway. So, uh, but I deeply appreciate the questions and your attention. Are there any questions? This is Cecilia Hickel, and, and I have a uh, I have a challenging question for myself. Perhaps it won't be so uh, challenging for you. Um, in my work trying to build an, a uh, service-oriented architecture, one of the words that has stumped me tremendously is the word pump. While it is also an action to actually physically pump something, uh, it also is an item of which there are many types. And I'm most intrigued and I'm looking at this, uh, you know, you have an action and you have an object and you have many types of objects. So in reference to slide 17 and the following 18, I, I, this question popped to mind is what would be your approach? Um, you have properties, you have identity, there's relationships, you know, this pump relates to this. Uh, the concept is everything and the users have their own concepts and I'm just trying to get your take on this. Uh, okay. We, we, we have both an action and a verb. I mean, a, a subject and a verb. I mean, a, you know, something's an action and something's an object. It's well, a concept, right? Yes. Well, but, but from the standpoint of, of a subject now, uh, they're both subjects. Even though pump, in one sense, is a verb. Let's, let's take a let's take a fairly concrete example. We have a pump, uh, like a gasoline pump, right? It's a physical object. It costs a lot of money to get stuff out of it. Uh, and on the other hand, we want to talk about somebody pumping gas. Okay, there, there's the action of actually pumping the gas. Right. Uh, well, in a, in a subject map, uh, if we wanted to, obviously we'd want to distinguish those two, we would have a subject proxy that says, okay, we have pump in the sense of the noun. Well, a pump uh, has a hose, it has, uh, it meters out gasoline, if we're talking about a gasoline pump. It's usually connected to a large underground tank. Uh, there are any number of properties that we could associate with, we, we could actually put with that subject proxy that if we were merging it, we would say, oh, well, this is a gasoline pump because it's got an underground storage tank, it's got a motor, it's got a metering device, it's got several other things. Now, if we're talking about pump the action, we would say, well, if we're going to identify pumping as an action, first of all, there has to be something, some something that's playing the role of the pump, right? If you have right. an action, there's something that's doing the pumping, or well, no, that's actually being acted upon. Uh, so we have the pump. You have to have someone who's doing the pumping. So we would create a subject proxy that says, well, in order to represent the action of pumping, you have to have, and it may be unknown what was being pumped. Okay, we just have. Right. Jack was pumping. We right. don't know what he was pumping, but he was pumping something. So we have some uh, a proxy that, that's actually used in, in a property in this proxy that represents something that's being pumped. Right. We don't know okay. what it is. Right. Uh, and we have we have the person who's doing the pumping. Right. Right. And we have this relationship between the two of them. Uh, it's what's called in in the reference model. We we used. Uh, it's a couple of versions ago, what we called assertions, which were assertions of relationships between two subjects. And and you had what we call role players, and one of them could be unknown. We don't know what Jack's pumping. He's pumping all sorts of things. 
Uh, but the identity, the subject identity of the action of pumping, we would actually list. Well, what do we have to know in order to distinguish that subject from the subject of the gasoline pump? So it's actually a question of what properties. If you're uh, rather than trying to think of it as subject and verb, if you think of it in terms of when I when I say those two words and I say, well, one of them's a verb, one of them's a noun. What are the characteristics? What are the properties that I would associate with one that I would not associate with the other? Because that's really how the subject map paradigm would actually cast that question. True. And, and of course, it, it might be different for different people, right? They, uh, somebody wants to describe, uh, oh, a heart pump, for example. Well, it's still a pump. And at some level, it's still a pump. Uh, but a doctor would describe that differently than perhaps the medical catalog would. And you don't want to be looking for a heart pump and find a gasoline pump. It's not, not really going to be very useful. And the word pump is just a name for something. And, and that's, that's uh, one of the, the reasons you really want to have other distinguishing things besides names for things. I don't want to date myself, but I can remember when I was a really young kid, their pumps were something that you actually wore to proms, and I don't recall whether they were shoes or <laughs> something around your ankles. This or is a true story. <laughs> and uh, so, so I mean, we could if we if we take pump the noun, I mean, we could go all over the map with it, and and so we have to we have to allow that the, that if you did a keyword search on just pump. The, the, a good map is going to come back and say, did you want the verb or which of the two nouns or whatever? And and it would give you the context under which that name can be applied. But but then you're going to have to disambiguate with other properties, and that's what Patrick is saying. I get that. Is this how you pump up an ontology? <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and that's a really, really good, uh, good question that that you pose. Thank you very much for that. You're welcome. I, I find myself trying to reason from the person doing the action or the actual object itself, and I'm thinking, which which am I doing here? One's the user who needs to do something, and the other is an object that someone is selling. This is uh, Roy Roebuck uh, interjecting here a little bit. One of the things you can consider is when you're looking at all these different subjects, whether it's a noun or a verb, the morphology of the subject. Uh, WordNet, for example, has a very large collection of, uh, uh, for a specific word, one of the different senses or the different uses of the word. You know, like, like we said earlier, here's, here's five nouns, uh, noun uses, and here's uh, three uh, three verb uses. Which do you want? And then you could basically pick up pick up ten or twelve digit number <laughs> that describes that specific one. Uh, in this case. Uh, but it, it does get down to essentially a morphological analysis and then characterizing the, the distinctions between the different meanings. And uh, there's a lot of there's a body of knowledge about that available for that. Sure. Isn't this, this very much? This is Pat Hunting related to. I mean, where would you put uh, thesaurus in this in this spectrum of things or relationship? I mean, are we talking about degrees of sameness or not to to make the map work? I think that it's probably reasonable to imagine that a thesaurus might actually motivate the construction of some some subject maps where you're trying to encode uh, very diverse universes of discourse. 
Um, if, if we're only talking about neurophysiology, we probably don't need a thesaurus, but we do have homology and a lot of other things going on. Um, if you take the, the word that is spelled B-O-W, and you can pronounce it bow and you can pronounce it bow, imagine the one sentence you could utter which uses it in all possible different ways. It's, it's, it's an interesting thing. Now, if you tried to topic map that, you, you, you'd, have, you'd have to have several subjects and you'd have to link them with quite a few um, assertions to to show how they fit together to make that sentence work. So, so in some ways, you'd have some you'd have a lot of um, activity around this um, this uh, particular bridge or set of bridges just to uh, accomplish all the different connotations that you well you would want to. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, this is Roy again. One of the things uh, that I've discovered in, in some of the work that's involved with SORI and such my efforts is that uh, you have to be careful because theosauri assume that there are uh, there is a preferred term and alternate terms, which means if sure. there's a preferred term, who's the authority that defines the preference? Uh, so theosauri tend to be uh, community or uh, organization specific. Uh, so uh, if you have two communities, they, when you merge their theosauri, mm -hmm. perhaps using a technique like this, uh, what's the preferred term if there are two preferred uses? So in some ways, you've really got a prescription for the, the parochial community that, uh, that, that has existed to clarify its own domain. Yeah, because every time you have two communities, even if it's, let's say, two aboriginal tribes together in some geographic area, they're going to have essentially a thesaurus built up at least verbally that says, here's, you know, here's tribe A's uh, meaning term Ooga Booga, and here's tribe B's meaning of the term Ooga Booga, and preferred is tribe A's because they're bigger. You know, that, and and you can capture all of that in a subject map, and then you have wormholes between tribes, uh, which is which goes to something I call cultural federation. Um, right. This right. is this would be the larger goal of exploring the space of of uh, information federation. One, one question I have: It's very pragmatic. If if, uh, if one goes out and looks at the ISO one three two five zero, obviously the the complete standard is there, but if if someone is trying to bootstrap themselves into more understanding here, um, is there something within the, the standard that sort of um, comes up with the sort of layman's approach to this or, or something that gets them into the subject? I mean, the, for instance, going through the set of slides is very, very instructive and a lot more tutorial than perhaps reading the standard. Um, you know, for people to look at this federation idea, uh, how, what would be a, you know, a path to, to acquire some proficiency with this? Um, so, so there, there the standards are, sometimes are, are great, but they're not tutorial. The really. standard was originally uh, based on the um, SGML variant of, of which is now called HiTM. Uh, we later amended it with the XTM or XML variant, but the TMRM, which uh, Patrick is deeply involved with is not part of the standard as I understand it. Um, it's, it's an emerging uh, technology. Um, I, I, please don't take this as a plug, but you, you can either go to the library or Amazon or whatever and get a copy of, of, of my book on XML, on, uh, XML topic maps. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a very brief and, and really sketchy chapter that talks about the what has been called the RM. Um, but 
there's also a lot of writing. If you go to coolheads.com, you'll find uh, a number of slide presentations um, by Steve Newcomb and and Patrick and Michelle Bazinski and and so forth that that can back you into this in their own way. Well, Jack, let me let me let me jump in. Uh, actually, uh, the reference model, the, the uh, by way of history, just very briefly. There was 13250 that was issued in 1999-2000, which is the one that Jack was describing was based on high time. Then the XTM community was formed, and we actually amended it to add the XML syntax. Since then, there's been a revision effort to revise 13250, and the reference model I've been discussing is part five of the revision. Now I'll give you fair warning. I'll have to send Peter a link to the uh, to the uh, the latest draft of it. Uh, the core of the reference model is about eight pages of nothing but notation, and it's. Uh, I mean, we we tried to make it as abstract and succinct as possible, so it's not a tutorial. Mm -hmm. However, uh, we we have written a fair amount of stuff uh, on it, and as a matter of fact, I'm. Uh, in the process, I can't promise you a completion date of writing an illustrated guide to the reference model that actually uses poker hands to illustrate all of the all of the rather abstract principles of the reference model. Uh, as well as I'm teaching a course this next fall at uh, University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign for their uh, graduate uh, school of library information science. So I'm actually developing a great deal of tutorial type material. Uh, most of it's fairly rough at this point, uh, but I'd be more than happy if anyone wants to send me an email address or, or even if Peter is interested uh, in you know just sending him links every once in a while to stuff as I get it completed. Actually, uh, Patrick and Jack, right underneath the bullet point with uh, where your slide, the link to your slides are, uh, there is a subsection for additional material, uh, since the audience has requested this, I mean, uh, please post references and links uh, right there. Then they will be sort of in the in the same place. People uh, referencing this presentation could be led to those additional resources. So. Okay. Very good. Uh, uh, this is uh, Michael Greenegrad. Uh, a couple of questions. Okay. Um, so how do you kind of see this uh, approach kind of being used? Is it, is it primarily a management uh, consultant tool for kind of mediating uh, discussions between people? That's one approach. Um, let, let me tell you the origins of, of my thinking. Um, Adam Tyre and I uh, put together a paper that I presented in Germany last year uh, the title of the paper was called Just For Me, Topic Maps and Ontologies. And um, the term Just For Me, let me give a brief uh, point on that. I went to a, to a, to a meeting in Santa Clara uh, where I had discovered that the primary epistemology of, of, of public education was just in case, which was shove everything at them, they might need it someday, where the constructivist approach is just in time, and this really nice woman that sat in the back of the room started giggling, and she said, actually, it should be just for me, which speaks to the notion of ownership of, of your knowledge. 
Um, and that's, that's the purest roots of constructivism. And we discovered when we put out um, our IRIS platform, which is an ontology-driven desktop uh, work, workstation built in, in the spirit of Douglas Engelbart's uh, hyperscope and open hyperdocument system, uh, we put it together and we began to notice that users were flustered by the ontology underneath. Um, people had used strange Latin names for classes and so forth. And that's when we, we began to ask what are the ways in which we could, we could mitigate the uh, growing disaster. And I proposed wrapping the ontology with a uh, topic map and that was the, the seeds of, of of the idea that we could use the topic map in the first place. From from there, the um, I'm losing my voice. Hang on a sec. Um, I became engaged in in the creation of a of a of a topic map for a, a, a neuro a neurological database. Uh, from a primate research center. I wish Doug Bowden was on, on this line. He apparently isn't today. But uh, there's a uh, primate research center that has a, a database that is responsible for, the, for maintaining the naming conventions for the National Li Library of Medicine's neuronames. And in building the topic map, we got into these ideas of preferred names and authorities and all of that. And that's when I began to realize <clears throat> there was room for federation here where we could we could ask researchers not to change their naming conventions, their relationships, essentially change their ontologies, but federate them to a central um, subject map in which um, all users would have these wormholes into the other research labs without disclosing any of the private information they didn't want to uh, federate to the map and so forth. So that it became possible to actually do a bit of cultural federation amongst scientific researchers, and that that's where um, uh, that's where uh, the roots of today's talk came. Um, because it, it it's kind of seems to be a kind of the experience, at least in in a lot of the uh, ontology news groups. You know, the problem is not in specifying mappings between ontologies. You know, that, there are a lot of languages for doing that. A lot of languages enable that. The problem is in uh, uh, generating mappings, or the biggest problem is just coming up to some way of evaluating mappings. Because even when a, one person proposes a mapping, the other person says, "No, that's not right." And you know, when things stay at a very informal level, it just degenerates uh, into argument, and, and the, you know, the, well, you can never arrive at anything. So that's kind of where the challenge is. Is, is in that evaluation of the correctness of a mapping. I, was, I didn't quite see that in in, in uh, the talk today. In, in you know, it, it was a great uh, medium for proposing mappings and you know, kind of being a nice you know, flip chart meeting tool. Um, but I didn't see that next step. I, well, I, I think. Jack, can I inter can Yeah, I inter please. Uh, well, uh, of course, we we presented it as though uh, the mappings we were doing were self-evident. Uh, which is partially uh, an artifact of doing a presentation. But in fact, different people could have different mappings coexisting in the same subject map. In other words, you think that uh, some particular mapping I've done between two terms based upon the properties that I have listed is incorrect. Uh, there's nothing that prevents you from having your own mapping. And, and the, the key to this is listing the properties 
on which you based your mapping. In other words, it's not sufficient for me, for example, to take today's example, for me to say, well, Adam and Psyche and Adam and uh, Sumo are the same. Because you know, some people might or might not agree with that. But if I tell you the basis on which I did that, I think that, that supplies the evaluative uh, aspect that you're asking about in terms of I can look at the mapping, and it's not simply uh, somebody said these two are the same. Uh, I can actually look at it and see why they and, said it was the same. And so where in, in the example, where was the why? In, in just even the example, the sumo uh, oh. site atom example, where was, where was the why? Uh, if you look at the the highlighted, uh, like on slide 30, uh -huh. if you look at the uh, the highlighted, the, the, the properties that are colored in red on slide 30. Right, electron, proton, and, nucleus. Yeah, yeah, and the ones that are kind of a bluish green on psych, uh, those are what are called subject identity properties. In other words, those are the properties that I said, if you match on these three, then you've matched the subject I'm talking about. Now, obviously, if you had a real civic proxy out of Psych or Sumo, you would have a lot more properties than that that have to be matched in order to match this particular subject. Uh, but the reason why those were highlighted was to indicate that the particular user, in this case me and Jack, uh, had made a decision that if you match on those three, then you're, you've matched on the subject that we think uh, this particular proxy is representing. Hi, this is Arturo Sanchez. Do we still have uh, time for more questions? Yes, uh, Arturo actually had the, uh, tapped in several questions. So if we yeah. go to the page uh, and look down below uh, where the slides, uh, the link to the slides are, uh, Arturo, uh, you've got three questions lined up already. Yeah, so, so, so if you start from the bottom, that could be kind of related to the question that um, Michael Groninger was asking before. So, so if you if you have this world where where anything can coexist uh, harmoniously, so to speak, do you have the concept of uh, contradiction or ambiguities? And if there are such things, how do you solve them? Uh, do you mean contradiction, as in uh, if I if I want to represent that the two proxies contradict each other? Yes. Um, I mean, go ahead. Um, no, what I was going to say, just related to my second question, is that there are examples in in in, in mathematical logic and set theory, etc., um, that show that when you pretty much allow anything to be anything, you can have like self-referential uh, uh, phrases that don't have any meaning or they can be contradictory within the theory. So uh, how can you avoid this if you have such a thing? Oh, well, we don't try to avoid it. I mean, what, what subject maps are trying to do, subject maps uh, are trying to uh, allow people to represent explicitly why, how they identify particular subjects. Now, it may be the case that the subject they're representing is a contradiction in some particular logical system. Uh, that's okay. I mean, that's that's their subject. In other words, uh, subject maps don't don't prejudge. Uh, for example, if I want to have a subject proxy for unicorn, well, we're all relatively sure that unicorns don't exist. 
but despite the fact unicorns don't exist, uh, nothing keeps me from having a subject proxy that identifies that subject. Uh, and by the same token, if I want to represent something that is, in fact, a contradiction in, in some particular logical system, uh, in fact, one of its one of its qualities might one of its qualities. If I want to represent uh, a logical statement that is a contradiction of itself, uh, that could very well be one of its properties. Is that if you come across a statement that has this uh, quality of contradictedness, I guess, for lack of a better word, uh, that's certainly a, a legitimate subject to represent because it is something that could be a topic of conversation. Now, if you mean contradiction in the sense that you have a subject map and I have a subject map, and they are just incompatible with each other, that uh, things that you say are, are subjects I say are not, uh, that certainly is possible. I mean, it's not. there's nothing in the paradigm that compels anyone to use anyone else's uh, view of what is or is not a subject. Or, to uh, take it a step further, it, nothing compels you to identify your subjects the same way I do, for example. So, but if, if you are writing systems that use your approach uh, to make decisions, for instance, then the system can get to a point where there are multiple decisions that are valid. So how do you how do you disambiguate those? Oh, oh, I see, I see. Okay. With a, with a subject map legend, if I were writing a system and, and one of the requirements is that there is only one decision, it can't reach contradictory results, right? Because we want it to come out with a answer. We don't want it to get caught into a loop. Uh, then you would have to write a subject map legend that uh, prohibits that from happening. I mean, you can actually, in other words, you have enough freedom to uh, get yourself into a really nasty situation. And so what you have to do is, to, if, you're, if that is a requirement of your system, that it not reach contradictory results or, or uh, go into a loop where it uh, simply can't resolve the problem, like, for example, in an aircraft control situation, we don't want that to happen. Well, yeah, but, but what I'm, I'm sorry. What I'm trying to say is that uh, the people who are putting together their knowledge might not anticipate and might not be able to anticipate a specific kind of ambiguity because it's going to be something that is going to be uh, dynamically generated. So therefore, they cannot anticipate that that's going to happen, and therefore the system is going to just choke. Uh, well, but yeah, if you use uh, Z or something, I mean, for a, for a mission critical system, I mean, I, I think you would be careful not to. Uh, yes, a completely unconstrained system, assuming that, that such a thing could exist. Uh, a completely unconstrained system in a mission-critical application would not be a very good idea. It's uh, probably not the right place to be federating a lot of world views. At some yes, point, yes. you have to say, oh, no, we're going with what, what you know, the team leader said, and that's what we're going to use. Um, it, that does, you're, you're, you're right at the fringes of that, that earlier question, what are some good use cases for this? And it's probably fair to say that mission-critical use cases don't call for federation anymore. They call for authority. Yeah. Do you have a list of subject mappers that are busy mapping subjects? This is Bob Smith. Uh, sure. Uh, the IRS, uh, they actually use it for their, uh, their help desk. 
application. Were you asking for examples of applications, or were you asking for names of humans doing the work? Names of humans doing the work. Uh, I volunteered last uh, Thursday in the uh, conference call to work with Denise and Lisa to begin ontologizing. It sounds like uh, the content today would be extremely useful in uh, thinking about the subjects and the subject map legends, referencing the, uh, the body of knowledge, particularly PowerPoint slides. Um, so so the, the three names that are doing what we're talking about today are, are uh, Steve Newcomb, Patrick DeRusso, and Jack Park. Now, there are other people engaged in doing TMRM, but I'm not aware of anybody else um, attempting to um, apply the TMRM to um, the sort of thing that uh, you're, you're suggesting. Um, my sense is that that um, it might be reasonable to take a look at the notion of finding all of the existing ontologies that come even close to uh, any of the universes of discourse within ontologues purview. And um, Patrick and I can work with you to uh, begin to look at how you would set up a, a legend to federate them. And from there, you can then begin to add um, uh, the content of the wiki itself as federable uh, information resources. Yes, exactly. we can exactly. engage both of you guys, I mean, that would be wonderful. Uh, be on the watch out on Texosaurus, which is Bob's uh, project that is just taking off. And uh, a wiki page has already been constructed. We are going to start a new mailing list, not just for the Texosaurus project, but probably for the entire on ontologizing ontolog uh, project of which Texosaurus probably would be one of the, the, the projects within that, that uh, uh, general rubric. Uh, you're, and, uh, getting you guys participate in that would be wonderful. So I guess we are about running out of time. It has been an extremely interesting talk and very timely, uh, applicable to what we are uh, looking at. Uh, and may I, I mean, on behalf of the community, thank both Jack and Patrick for delivering such an interesting talk today. Thank you for all the great questions. Yeah, much appreciated. Uh, before everyone leaves, I mean, Jack, as he mentioned, uh, has uh, has been working on part of the IRIS, which is the sort of uh, user interface, I mean, if, for lack of a better description, to some of the work that the SRI KALO project is uh, working on. And... Uh, most of us heard the name Adam Chaya mentioned a few times. Uh, in fact, next Thursday, same time, uh, we are going to have Adam Chaya uh, from SRI, the Artificial Intelligence Center, coming here to talk to give a talk on ontology management in Halo. And uh, for those who have.
CALO. CALO is the acronym for Cognitive Assistant that learns and organizes. And it's actually DARPA's most ambitious effort to develop a persistent assistant that lives with and learns from and supports users in managing the complexity of their daily lives. Uh, it, it sort of uh, pulls all the resources in the AI, uh, uh, I mean, all the main resources from the AI communities, like 200 plus researchers from 25 academic and commercial organizations. So we probably don't want to miss Adam's talk next week. So uh, that note, thanks to Jack, Patrick, uh, Doug Engelbart, and all, everyone who has been able to join us today. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Thanks, Peter. Thank Bye. you. Thanks, Thanks Peter. Congrats, everyone. Thank you.